Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with, Ger- with Derek Gongeron, Product Management Director for CCUS at S&P Global. Many of you probably know S&P Global, and rightfully so, because it's a pretty big company. There is a lot to S&P Global, so instead of me trying to give a rundown, I'm just going to let Derek take care of that, and instead of me continuing to ramble, maybe it's time to get him on the mic. So Derek, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please, share with me in the audience your background and a quick introduction to S&P Global, and more specifically, what you and your group do. Excellent. Thank you, Joe, and a pleasure to be here. So for me, I'm an engineer by background, and I spent 13 years with Schlumberger evaluating the subsurface. And then the last six years, I've been working with IHS Market, or IHS uh, for a lot of people. And IHS and Market merged, and then S&P acquired IHS and uh, Market together in an acquisition as uh, about a year ago now. Uh, actually, we're going to be celebrating one year of the acquisition that closed in about two weeks. And so what this kind of gives us is kind of that breadth and depth of coverage that goes across the entire energy ecosystem. So if someone is trying to move molecules around the world or or generate electrons and, and needs to know everything they need to know, we have that in our ecosystem from the commodities that are being traded to all of the data needed to analyze where it needs to go in the subsurface and all of the markets in between there. So that's our why Commodity Insights is sort of its name of a division inside of S&P, and that's what we work on now. So it's not IHS anymore, it's not Platts, it's Commodity Insights, because we're helping all of the commodities understand their market and how to navigate their business landscape right now. And so for me, I've recently moved over from the business development side to the CCUS side under our upstream organization to help those molecules that are uh, being captured those molecules of CO2, I should say, not all of them, but the CO2 molecules that are post-capture go back underground or do something with them. And so that's uh, my remit is to help our clients navigate our ecosystem and to also work within our ecosystem to find ways we can enhance our offerings for those workflows because CCUS is a rocket ship of an industry and it's growing so fast uh, and doesn't have a lot of deployments so people really need to understand how to navigate it. And so I'm trying to help them do that. That is very exciting. And I, I, I especially like the fact that as an engineer, you're, you're an engineer, I'm a geologist, our start and our teeth were, were cut in the subsurface. And it's exciting to hear about the whole idea of commodity insights and this big picture 
because as a geologist, I've always focused on the subsurface. That's just, just one part of the problem. Typically, we would produce whatever energy, and at that point, it becomes somebody else's problem. They get to go solve how you actually take that energy now sitting at the surface and get it out to market. So it's it's really interesting. And I think as you were explaining it, it it makes me think of you mentioned ecosystem and the whole viewpoint of what it is and, and how valuable it is. And in some ways you're kind of you're kind of identifying silos and then you are trying to build bridges or break down those silos so that somebody can understand the whole process. I literally have a foam sledgehammer that I can put behind uh, my camera uh, to actually show like, this is for breaking down the silos. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Because if you look at it, if if somebody needed to move a carbon dioxide molecule from capture to underground, we probably have 18 products that they could utilize to do that. And so for us and them to understand how to navigate our ecosystem is a lot of silo breaking down to do that. And although I'm strictly on the post-capture side, a lot of us are trying to understand what everyone's doing on the capture side. So we have an entire carbon markets and clean energy group uh, that looks at uh, emissions. We have an emissions group that looks at what's going on with corporate emissions, their announcements, what they're doing, uh, and uh, upstream enhanced emissions. So everyone who is in the upstream space has a specific target that's being given by a lot of their investors, be it a couple of guys in a garage to large ones. Eh, some privates might not have that remit, but to have an emissions intensity of their fuels understood. And so we're helping them understand that to a very granular level. We have over 6 million wells and assets mapped around the world for emissions wow. intensity uh, on just the upstream side alone. And then we also have all of the corporate emissions and their announcements there too. So all that side needs to be understood. We also have a whole chemicals group that's uh, doing how to capture and the cost of capture and what are the technologies out there. So everything on that side of it is really great. But then my job is is taking it the rest of the way. So our, uh, helping our clients figure out, okay, from there on, where, how do I get it underground? Where is uh, the ecosystem of transportation? And what's the best way to do that? And so it's really awesome to have all of these great people working this entire process to help uh, our clients out. And so many of them are lost right now. And so to hear them come to us with these really wide open questions like where do I begin? Someone just made an announcement. Someone just made a memorandum of understanding. I was assigned to do this and not even know where to start. Like, excellent. Let's help you get there. And so we work them through that. And that's that's been fun to see people that are lost and to help them get there. And these are not like uh, people who don't understand what they need to do. They know what they need. these are experts like us. These are engineers and geologists. They're just trying to do something they've never done before. And so it's, it's really awesome to try to help them solve these problems and, and to come from that science background. It's like, yeah, I get to like problem solve. And so it's awesome yeah. to that. So I really enjoy that part of it. Yeah. So you mentioned that CCUS is a rocket ship. Can you explain that? Can we dive into that a little bit more? What do you mean that it is this rocket ship of an industry? So basically every public organization and even our internal ones, when they look at climate modeling, trying to hit the, the Paris goals or the negative two degree or negative 
not, not negativity, positive two degree or 1.5 degree, depending on what the goals are um, for climate concerns, what they're going to be looking for is how to get that done. And when we do our climate scenario modeling, we do point forward. So we look at the entire emissions around the world, look what everyone's announcing from a government and a client uh, and, and an emitter standpoint, like every, all the facilities, and then we bring those forward. But a lot of other reports have done is go backwards. They go, this is where we need to be. Here's a straight line to today. This is what needs to happen. We take a more practical approach. Like what are people saying that they could possibly do and what gets us there? And there's no scenario that works in that environment. It's what everyone's saying right now is definitely not enough um, without one of two things, an entire technology mitigation where new technology needs to be invented that it does not exist yet. to give us the molecules and electrons we need to go about our world, or we need accelerated CCUS. We need CCUS accelerated at an exponential level to get gigatons of carbon dioxide underground. Uh, We need something about the same size, scale, and weight of the oil and gas industry to be stood up in the next 27 years. And that gets us to in my opinion, 1.5 by 2050, if we can do that. Right now, there is not nearly as enough momentum in the CCUS space to get there, but in order for us to avoid the really catastrophic climate numbers we're looking at, then CCUS needs to be deployed uh, at scale to get us away from the really bad climate scenarios in the future. Because if you look at how the electrons are being emitted right now, uh, are being generated and how the molecules are being generated for power, there's no way we can just turn all that off in the world. We saw that recently. That's why it went from energy transition to energy security. Uh, Because people realized, hey, we need to make sure our people can still get their power that they need to run everything they need for the economy, but also at the same time balance that with the climate of the future. And how do we do that? Well, you can't just turn off all the emitting sources. You can't make the emitting sources illegal. You can't uh, unfund them or anything like that. We saw that with oil price going through the roof because the production was unfunded uh, for a while. And what we need is all hands on deck, balanced approach where we can continue to keep everything powered and running, but at the same time, get as much of that net zero as possible. And that's the key. If it's net zero, it doesn't matter. If it's a natural gas facility, you can capture 100% of the CO2, then it's perfect. You, that natural gas facility is still a hydrocarbon facility, but if you can put a system in place that captures it all, you're good. Um, and it doesn't have to all be uh, renewables, although it can be. In order to get there, the renewables aren't going fast enough to get us there. There's, there's all kinds of bottlenecks within the materials uh, to get there. We had a report come out last year on copper, lots of bottlenecks to get the renewables there. And so CCUS is needed to take what is emitting and that can't be abated and get that emissions underground at scale. 
yep. to get us there. Okay. So I see what you're saying, and, and we need CCUS in order to expedite net zero goals and really to hit these net zero goals. And this is really what, what you're diving into now with your role as, the, as this director position for the CCUS group. And I guess you've been, how, how long have you been in this position and how long have you been strictly focused on CCUS? About six weeks. Six <laughs> weeks, okay. So, uh, yeah, so internally uh, it was announced in last October, but I finished up my role at the end of last year, my previous role, and uh, jumped into this one. So it was, it was a, a, a sort of a, a zippered merch transition, but I was really had to focus on my uh, previous business development role last year. And so now we're just hitting the ground running uh, with it and looking at everything we have uh, to help our clients out. And it's really awesome when we put them together for a client. And I've seen this already a few times as we put together a CCUS package, they're trying to answer a question, determine what fits into their needs and their budget. And to see a few months later, them make an announcement and say like, hey, we just partnered up with so-and-so on the CCUS project. I'm like, yeah, I helped that, uh, <laughs> that carbon get on the ground or help that project get going uh, because they need the data and the tools and insights to make all those decisions. And then we just put it together in a package form that works out. All right. Yeah. So you're coming at this with, with relatively fresh eyes, only six weeks in. What do you see as some of the biggest problems right now in this necessary expediting of CCUS. What are what are those bottlenecks that we still have that maybe in your silo you don't necessarily see? Uh, so the two biggest things are risk and uncertainty in my opinion. So there's a lot of financial risk because of the different methods to commoditize this because CCUS at the end of the day is a waste disposal industry. And so waste disposal doesn't have very good profit margins for the most part. And so how do you make money with this? Well, you're gonna see carbon taxes, tax credits, voluntary carbon markets, compliance carbon markets, also the public perception. So if you have a net zero product, uh, what can you get for it? But all of those are gonna be variable. All of those numbers are potentially gonna change over time. So how do you make a business plan where the revenue stream could be volatile. Say if it's a, it's a tax or tax credit, what happens if there's a regime change? Uh, if you're trading in the marketplace, in the voluntary carbon markets, what happens if the price goes below what is profitable for you? Um, and so there's a lot of risk people are trying to consider there, but uh, uh, I think a lot of the governing bodies that are setting these up are starting to understand they need to more certainty there. So they're putting more laws and bumpers in place to, to make people feel a little safer investing in this industry. One example of that is the IRA, and we're hearing a lot of governments around the world looking at the IRA and its uh, tax credit system and how it's incentivizing the energy transition as a sort of standard that they're gonna Start modeling some of their legislation after. And I think that could be really helpful, not just IRA, but others around the world where you see, oh, that's actually working. Somebody did something, it de-risked or made it more certain for the uncertainty component of it, and we're gonna go after that. And, they, and, then, and that's 
on the financial side of things, the other uncertainty is these large volumes of CO2. How does that plume look over time in these giant saline aquifers that we haven't done much work in? Like besides a few places in the world, we don't really know about saline aquifers and injection into them in a grand scale. We've done it a few times, but to have such a little uh, test basically done over the last 20 years of saline aquifer sequestration, that's a, it's a big risk people are trying to understand. Like what is the best reservoir? What's the best zone? What are they looking for? Thousands of papers and research are being done out there, but something I'm not seeing is like, all of that is great, but one test is worth more than a thousand expert opinions and papers. And so we need more tests done. And right now, those tests are taking about five to six years from conception to execution. And so the iterations, the learnings, the failures that will come with that is also going to be a, a component for CCUS that's a risk. Because I compare CCUS a lot to the shale gas re revolution or shale oil or the whole, the whole unconventional space. When Mitchell first discovered it, everyone was like, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread and went out there and started realizing, oh, there are certain things that don't work in this environment. But the iterations, the tests and the failures were occurring every three to six months. In CCUS, those iterations of failure and learnings are gonna be every three to six years. And going back to what I said earlier, we need to scale up exponentially more in 27 years and take those learnings with us. So everyone needs to be completely on top of their game, be sharing what they're learning, sharing the knowledge of uh, how the projects succeeded, failed, and having some sort of public trust in there too, that if there is a failure, that it's for the greater good of trying to get carbon dioxide out of the air, and we're gonna try stuff differently. Um, and it's also an industry to make sure that a failure is not catastrophic. And when talking about failure, you're talking about like big releases or something like that, if there's any sort of leaks. And so yeah. all of that, those risks and uncertainties need to be uh, fully understood, weighted and played out um, for companies that are making financial investment decisions in this waste disposal industry. Yeah, yeah and I, I can definitely see what you're saying there when we're talking about something like tax credits versus the voluntary market, because if you, if you're building your entire business model on on this idea of we're going to be able to continually sell carbon credits for a certain price or more and then it drops below that well now you're almost in an existential crisis of like everybody says that this is a crisis and if we don't sequester this carbon and we don't keep keep the temperature below that 1.5 then society will end. But now I'm no longer making money and I'm essentially a charity. And this is no longer a business, it is a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's a losing <laughs> losing business. So it's weird, it's a weird dichotomy of, of having a for-profit business that we are entrusting the, for lack of a better term, the salvation of humanity on. And that's where I could see the value of having carbon tax credits and, and potentially even a carbon tax on the, that, that governments institute to say, okay, if you're going to be in business, now you have to have these taxes here and you have to be a, a clean player. But I guess to your point, 
how many companies actually know how to even do that? And especially ones that don't work in the subsurface. They don't really know how to go and sequester carbon. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. And then also uh, how to sequester, where to sequester, why, where are the emissions, where are they are. All of those are the questions that are being accessed all the time. And that's one thing I love about being here is we have answers to all of those questions. I mean, it's we're, we're learning like everyone else is right now. Uh, and there's no way I could write a book about this because I'd be rewriting 10% <laughs> of it every week. Um, but we are answering a lot of those questions for our clients and so our, and, and our new existing clients that come into our ecosystem are like, oh, you already have a lot of the answers that I'm looking for to justify some of these decisions and to show to my investors as to why we're doing it and the tools I need to actually execute CCUS, like how to do it and doing that due diligence, that's where we come in. Like the announcements and all of the, the grandeur that goes into a CCUS announcement, that's, that's great, but then when someone gets a piece of paper and says on their desk, how do I do this? How do I get do my due diligence instead of like just quick screen and stuff like that? That's when we come in and, and people get into our ecosystem and make those decisions. And so it's, it's fun to be in this and to kind of see, ooh, I have the answers right over here and, and to help them out with that. And yeah. then, or if I don't, talk to somebody internally and be like, hey, we need an answer to this and what can we do to answer it? And then what's our timeline on getting something out that could answer yep. it? So it's, it's really fun to build that. Yeah, and I think it, it is cool to see, to see the involvement of somebody like S&P Global because you are in this unique position. You are this, this very large company. You have the data. You have a look at the markets. And, and as you explained earlier, IHS plus market plus S&P Global through these through these mergers and acquisitions you have developed a a very large i guess knowledge base to see to see the forest for the trees and you have that view where you can start looking through everything yeah. so practicality let's start talking about you've you've mentioned the risk and uncertainty those are the biggest challenges are there any specific things that you can talk about on how you are helping solve those yeah so you hit something that has actually come up quite a bit uh more even the last couple of weeks was seeing the forest through the trees and what i'm hearing is a lot of clients that are trying to get into this space they don't want to buy trees, they want to buy a forest. And so like, I'm tired of like piecemealing my answer together with something here, something here. If I can just get, I see the forest and if you can provide me the forest of answers, that's where it's at. And something that tells a narrative story through there where it's consistent, where if someone's trying to understand the energy scenarios with answers from one entity and then using the cost of capture from another entity, but the cost of transportation and storage from another entity, all of those things provide some disconnected stories when they're going to the investors because a lot of those estimates aren't aligned. And if we can tell one consistent story, um, that helps out. And then some pe sometimes people can add on to that with some uh, third-party justification if necessary, but we tend to be t the ones telling the major through-line story there. And that's been extremely helpful for some of our clients to understand that. Um, but some of the things that we're doing is, like I hinted at earlier, was cost. So what is 
not just the big general cost, but let's break it down. Of if I have a facility with X amount of equipment on there and I wanted to decarbonize at this rate over this time, what would be my, my cost for that? Well, we're building out tools for that. Okay, so the next step is, now how do I get that on the ground? All right, like what is the cost to move it, transport? What's the cost per pipe in different areas of the world? What's the cost of, of different acquisitions and stuff like that? So all of those initial estimates that had that risk stuff, we're building out those models with our current data sets to help people out um, on that side of it. Um, the other thing that we're kind of looking at doing, or not looking at doing, doing, is expanding our basin coverage to the saline aquifers because that's something that really wasn't part of the ENP workflow. If you're trying to inject into a depleted oil and gas field for either uh, sequestration or for tertiary recovery and EOR, we have you covered. Like, I mean, that is that is our bread and butter because we've been doing EOR, EOR for EOR, sorry, for decades, and then uh, the depleted fields. We have all the information you could ever think of to understand the the well infrastructure and the reservoirs in spades. And we're building lots of stuff to help people go that route. But where the uh, that third type of injection site that sequestration site, that's the one that has the least amount of information. And so that's where we have the most uh, headcount and work to help our clients understand it because those saline aquifers offer a couple of things, uh, big volumes and uh, large injection rates. That's something that depleted oil and gas fields don't have. And so if someone's trying to really make a, a carbon hub or a distributed network, um, that's where it really comes in. And so we help them uh, understand where those are and we're mapping more of them into our system and really getting the data needed for someone who wants to go after that to understand what exactly is available. Where can I send my carbon if I'm an emitter or if I'm a capture person, like where are my emitters that I can bring into an ecosystem? Because what some people are seeing on the risk side is point to point one emitter, one sink, it adds risk. What happens if the emitter goes down? What happens uh, if the sink goes down? If you can distribute that, make a hub, multiple emitters with a hub that has multiple entry points, or you can do a, a distributed network. Compared, we're, we're here in Dallas, so like what Denbury has on the Gulf Coast, lots of injection points and lots of emitters coming into like a 1300 mile pipeline network. They can just send it any which way they want and inject it wherever they need. So if something goes down, they can do that. That's something that's great about Denbury. They've been doing this for 20 years. It went bankrupt because it didn't work for them. Uh, but now all the ec economics are in their favor. Everything's in their favor and they're blowing and going. So if people want to uh, see how to do it, I say look at Denbury because, uh, yeah, they're 20 years ahead of everyone else in this space. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and they're right here in Dallas. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as you were talking, the ideas behind risk, uncertainty, building out new new databases with saline aquifers and and understanding when where how to connect all of these in a carbon hub setting to me i'm i'm adding up different parameters different variables different scenarios that ultimately to me is those are all things that you want to you want to model those and you want to start looking at those almost from a risk mitigation probability perspective of what are the, the types of opportunities here? What are the types of, of risks in a, in a quantitative way? All of that to say, 
And as I'm sure you are, you remember from your days as an engineer, all of that takes computational time and takes a lot of, a lot of man hours and a lot of effort. So what are ways that S and P global and you and your team, how are you, I guess, making this faster and more efficient? So kingdom is our major geoscience tool, but we also have some additions to our tool set. We have two tools, uh, Impact and Analytics Explorer. Analytics Explorer is a tool that TIPCO uh, Spotfire built with us. Um, basically allows our data from our different tools like Kingdom and Harmony and our Interdeck and Eden interfaces or international North America data sets, if we're going to data to merge together um, to do everything from base analytics to full-on AI ML workflows to really dive down into it. The other thing is we want to be on the leading edge of this. So we do have some partnerships with universities that are doing cutting-edge AI ML work to say, how, how can we utilize this to understand basins where the data set is weak? Going back to the saline aquifer side. If you're trying to do it in a depleted oil and gas field, you probably have enough data to make your decision. And you can use AI ML to help, but the saline aquifer is where it really comes in because you might have one, two wells drilled forever there, maybe a couple of 2D seismic lines through there and not much else. And you need to try to like map this out to see if it's, if it's even viable to go after and run a 3D on. Well, uh, some of the university partners that we're funding has, has been helping us to understand what kind of calculations and tools we can use um, in our own software data ecosystem to help our clients answer those questions. And what's great is we have a few researchers that are doing that, and it's been fun to sit on some of those calls to see them go through how they're using it um, to make those decisions. One awesome one is uh, we have this Gulf of Mexico project in Kingdom that has been every week I see something awesome come out from the team there. And the most recent one was we were looking at like why did some of the people that already leased up CCUS blocks in the Gulf of Mexico pick those blocks. Mm. And so we looked at all the research on why you would pick certain blocks, built a six plus terabyte kingdom project with 2D and 3D seismic in it, and then started diving into it and like, oh, look at this, look at this, look at this. Look at the certain traits that they found in this area. I think this is what some of these uh, big uh, integrated oil and gas companies are seeing, and that's where they're going into this area. Now let's make an analogous of that, and let's go out and say, okay, if these are their sinks, where are the other sinks in the Gulf of Mexico? And we have this great uh, map that I hope is ready by Sarah Week that looks at the Gulf of Mexico with these individual sinks in there, which kind of takes the initial maps that I've, I saw when we were talking about the Gulf of Mexico being like the prime best area for CCUS and turns it on its head and saying, look, these are the actual sinks there. It's not just giant blob of one giant saline aquifer you can inject into. These are the ones that you can actually inject into. Like this is your uh, containment area here because of um, thickness of zone, continuity, uh, continuous sandstones, um, uplift from 
salt domes, lots of fracturation going on in there. Everything that a geoscientist would be looking at, we've kind of put into it and defined these different blocks. And it's going to be fun for us to see who starts picking up those, those same blocks. Because right now, all the ones that we've seen sit right on top of where we've put our polygons. Oh. And so like, okay, let's see where they go next because there's a lot more polygons on there, but it's not just uh, a free-for-all where all of it works. There's some stuff that uh, doesn't work because uh, of thickness, and there's some that, we're, uh, gonna be, that we might be cutting out of our model soon, um, what I heard because of a seal. Like, man, oh. the, the seal's just not there. And, and everything's great, just don't see that top seal. And so yeah. it's, it's that part of it is that due diligence side and it's great to have researchers going in there and, uh, and looking in, doing it, and then using our data and tools to make that model and then providing that feedback to our data team and to our software team, like this is what I need your tool to do to help me make that decision. And then our, and then our teams reacting to that and saying this is how we need to modify our products uh, to help accomplish these things. And we're already making those behind the scenes modifications in our roadmap to help clients out because we're, we're doing it ourselves. We're not trying to get into the space. We're not, we're not going to be leasing. S&P is not <laughs> in this space. We're, we're doing it as a research to see what we need to do and to help our yeah. clients out and make those decisions. And then to have some just fun research projects on yeah. it. Yeah, I think one guy actually was like, I think I might be getting corporal tone on my wrist because I'm having so much fun <laughs> making this project work because it was such a new science for him. I was like, wow. don't do that and then uh, take some time off. Like, yeah. <laughs> put a brace on your wrist. Yeah, very cool. And I think that's, that is the exciting part, right? When you've got enough data that you can start looking and putting together those pieces and seeing what, really what makes that work. So I've got one more, one more question, which is really because y'all look at everything and, and with what you're doing now in the CCUS space, kind of looking at both upstream, midstream, downstream from a almost full life cycle, full supply chain management perspective. It's a very simple question. What's better, carbon capture and storage or carbon abatement? Uh, I mean, because I'm in CCUS, I should say carbon capture and storage, but it, the reality is carbon abatement because it, you, you, you don't have that whole other side of the risk. You don't have to take up all of the risk of capture and, and cost and making a waste disposal business model because you stop the waste generation to begin with. However, this is the, the but, and why we go back to the beginning, there are lots of emitting industries that cannot abate. It is cost prohibitive for them to abate. The technology isn't there for them to abate at any scale that they would need to, to stop their emissions. Um, so there's lots of things that go into it that make these certain industries easy and a lot of other ones very difficult. Um, to abate, so that's where CCUS comes in. That's why IEA, IPCC, even our own uh, climate scenarios, basically everyone who's do, done climate scenarios has looked like, we can't get there with just abatement. We can't get there just abating these emissions. We need to have CCUS to get the existing carbon out of the air, because it's not getting pulled out of the air right now. That's why it's there. It's just a constant growing quantity of CO2 in the air and we're just adding more to it. So we need to do both. So that's where direct air capture comes in and that's where 
uh, capturing in industrial facilities comes in to get it stopping from mid into air and then capture it with air and start getting it underground because every scenario just does not work with just abatement. But abatement is better, but it's not deployable everywhere in every industry. Yeah. I've, I've never really thought about that question clearly as deeply as you have. And I think that's, that's a very well-spoken, thought-out answer of Thank you. when you can abate, but ultimately we need both. Mm-hmm. And there are scenarios where you're not going to be able to abate. And that's just, but if, if, if you don't have to worry about putting it underground, like that's all just added risk. <laughs> yeah. It's a very, very important point to, for everybody to hear is that minimizing risk is, is part of the keys to this. And that's, it's very valuable. With that, I think we will, we're going to transition into the final questions. The first one being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? So I, when I read, I like um, to read fantasy. And so Wheel of Time is my favorite fantasy series. It's like 14 books by uh, Robert Jordan and absolutely fantastic. And I'm really excited that, uh, I think it's Amazon. Yeah, Amazon Prime is making a TV series out of it um, because that's my favorite book series. And so I typically read fantasy. Have you started watching the show? Oh, yeah. How many seasons do they have? Uh, So one season is out right now. Second season has done, is done filming and they haven't announced a release date. And I did hear a news article that said that Amazon liked what they saw so much of season two that they greenlit season three before season two was even out. Wow. So that's exciting for me as a fan to see more of it because I, I really enjoyed the show. They made some changes in the books, especially in the finale of season one uh, that I didn't like. But for the most part, I really enjoyed that season. And what I also enjoyed was uh, my wife and a few other family members have not read the books and they liked the show more than me and my dad did because we both read the books. <laughs> and so it was great because we brought that baggage in of like, this is what, the, this is what it's supposed to be, but they didn't have that and they enjoyed yeah. the show even more. So that, that was good to hear that it has this audience that is not necessarily the book reader. So that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So the next question, when will we be net zero as a society? Oh, I, I hinted at a lot of this earlier. So it, it, excuse my skepticism here but there's gonna be no G20 country that delivers net zero by 2050. And um, that's based on our S&P global scenarios. Uh, We run three scenarios that are practical. One's called discord, one's called inflection, and one's called green rules. Inflection is the middle base case one. Green rules is everybody cooperating together to get carbon abated or underground. Discord is everyone's fighting, no one's doing anything right. Inflection is sort of where we're at right now where there's a mixed bag of some people fighting and not doing it, and some people doing it. And in our inflection scenario, and remember this is all point four, this is taking what is realistic. Uh, We're estimating 2.4 degrees C by 2050, which is above uh, all of the estimations. And and we're just moving, overall, the reason that's the case is everyone's moving too slow. Abatement's moving too slow, renewables are moving too slow, CCUS is moving too slow, everything's moving too slow to actually achieve these goals. And it goes all back to everything we were talking about before to get it done. And to actually go back and answer your question, 
if we achieve green rules where we kind of get on the same page, we'll be net zero by, I think, 2100. So it will be past my time for that one, but that's, it's, it's, it's a ways in the future. Uh, and we'll probably, and then that scenario, we're about 1.8 C instead of 1.5 by 2050, and then not net zero until 2100. Um, and I think if people understood that reality, that we're not moving fast enough, that the risk and uncertainty parameters that are preventing the energy transition from happening right now would be kicked into higher gear. But I just don't think with the energy security debate going on right now, that that is practical in the next year. Uh, Because I think there's so much going on with energy security that it's changing the dialogue and changing the energy mix. And so we're moving further away from green rules than a lot of people would like. So yeah, that's, that's my uh, skepticism, even though I am in the industry of getting it on the ground, just not seeing it fast enough. Yeah. There, there is a lot there to dig into. I think I'll have to invite you back <laughs> on a, on a totally different topic. So no worries. I like that answer. We'll leave it at that and we'll talk more offline. The last question, now you actually get to ask me a question. Okay, uh, so you're in the geothermal side a lot, so where will geothermal energy generation be in terms of like the energy market share? What do you think the market share for geothermal energy will be in 2050? Do you have any guesstimations, estimations on that? That is a, it's a, it's a good question. There are, estimations out there that have been made by the Department of Energy, the Geothermal Technologies Office, different national labs. I don't think that that is one that people have thought about as far as if we're going to hit net zero, what part needs to specifically be geothermal. But a lot of those a lot of those reports say or I think a goal was 60 gigawatts by by 2050 or 2060. I think that was one that was made in the GeoVision report. And that number, 60 gigawatts would, it, I think the important part is that that is four times more than the entire world capacity of geothermal right now it's four times more that's just in the u.s is the kind of target that they've set i don't i honestly don't remember exactly how much market share that would be but i want to say right now the market share in the u.s is 0.1 percent and it's at about three gigawatts three to four gigawatts so if you multiply that by 20 now you're at about 2%, is that right? Mm-hmm. From 0.1 multiplied by 20 would be 2%, yeah. which is, it sounds small, but I think the important part here is that that is all baseload. And one thing that, that has not been talked about enough, there's a few different reports out there that show the value of the baseload and the real, the real cost comparison of something like baseload energy to wind or solar that ultimately needs to be backed up with 
battery storage, and then natural gas peaker plants. And the value of that baseload ultimately allows you to to expedite renewable energy penetration for the other the other technologies out there. So just having that two percent would it may be it may seem like a small amount, but it ultimately opens the door for a lot more. And that's just this is the other part. That is just talking about enhanced geothermal systems. That doesn't talk about things like synthetic geothermal reservoirs. It doesn't talk about district heating and cooling, which isn't electricity generation, but it ultimately reduces the amount of electricity need. So it's almost, you could, you could add it and qualify it as net total power being used. And then there are, I want to say, I think just in the, the past year or two, there was over 100 megawatts of PPAs signed, mm-hmm. which, again, that's, that's not gigawatt scale, but I think we're going to continue to see megawatts getting added on in traditional geothermal settings, which by 2050 could add up to another one, two, three gigawatts, maybe even more, as we get better with our exploration, drilling, the this weird um something we haven't talked about is the the meshing or the hybridization of a traditional geothermal power plant so think of you drill a well and it's sub-economic well now if you go in and stimulate that well you might be able to make it economic that is something that we haven't really talked about as much in geothermal and or as much in oil and gas that the idea is if, if you don't have a good well, now you can go in and frack it and potentially make a good well. And it's, it's I think, less of a risk in geothermal that you could enhance the permeability and get a usable well. So those are areas Recover some where, of those losses yeah. on old wells by, by instead of making a molecule of hydrocarbon energy turning into an yeah. electron to the grid. Yeah, and I think those are all ways that we're de-risking geothermal and will quickly and rapidly increase that market share and that full renewable energy penetration. Yep, and like both of our disciplines, it requires someone to fully understand it. And with such new newness in these industries, that's not even a word, sorry about that one, <laughs> uh, that it's really difficult to get people to understand that uh, process that had never thought about it before. Yeah. Because if someone comes in new to CCUS, it's like, all right, like where is their education level? Primary school, elementary school? Yeah. Where where do you want to get to? You want to get to college level or like where are you at right now? Yep. And it's it's a it's 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 starting there and then taking them there. Because right now they're curious about CCUS uh or they're in it. And so I need, we're trying to everybody that I'm talking to, I need to figure out where their knowledge is and where they want to get to and what questions yep. they're asking. Because no Few people are across the whole ecosystem, but some of them are just in their one niche of CCUS. Like, okay, you're in this space. This is what you need to know. This is the this is your package that answers your questions, and then this is the team that's going to help you do that. And so that it, it's it's that level of education uh, is needed to get people deploying these technologies. And instead of it, uh, knowledge being in 
mine and yours heads yeah. it needs to be shared more on podcasts like this that people are consuming and in reports and white papers and all that stuff like that. Yep. So, yep. Absolutely. Well, Derek, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? Uh, yes, a couple of things. Uh, so one, because we're sponsored by, uh, or you're sponsored by AWS, our flagship upstream softwares like Kingdom and Harmony are cloud deployable. Uh, so if someone does need to deploy in the cloud instead of running it on a, a solid machine, our software is cloud deployable. And I will be facilitating Sarah Week the 6th through 10th of March. So anyone who is at Sarah Week, if you see me there, say hi. If you want to chat CCUS, as we've just attested through this podcast, I can get into the weeds and have a really fun conversation about CCUS and we can talk about anything you want to talk about CCUS while I'm there. Uh, and if you want to talk about something else besides CCUS, I can also do that, but I'm clearing that stuff out of my brain to make room for CCUS knowledge. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And, and this podcast, if you're listening to it, the week it drops, Sarah Week will be next week in Houston, and I'll be there recording shows. So find Derek, grab a selfie, talk about CCUS, find me, grab a selfie, and hopefully get you on the podcast at some point. Did you have something else, Derek? Oh yeah, if you're grabbing a selfie with me, do not expect a pretty pic. I I <laughs> I do not photograph. I am I am an, I have an engineer's uh, photogenic face. So <laughs> don't put that on your Instagram. <laughs> put it on your LinkedIn. There you go. Yep. And I will be in my bow tie. Everybody keeps asking, "Where's my bow tie?" Don't worry, I will have it on. Well, with that, thank you for everyone. Thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want to hear more energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to go fill out. The link is in the show notes. Please go fill that out, and if you do, we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.